All right, thanks for joining us. We are in the book of Acts. We are on week number 18, which means we are in chapter number 18, and we are in the, uh, I was going to say the middle, but we really are actually kind of toward the end of the second preaching journey of the Apostle Paul and his uh, companions. Well, his companions are going to rejoin him here. Uh, I've got my companion on this journey through the entire book of Acts, Jason Bridgen with me. Jason, how you doing? Looking forward to this. Yes, sir. I hope there's no uh, sharp dissensions that send us in opposite directions. <laughs> we would not want that. Uh, maybe this chapter will, will not uh, lend itself to any kind of controversial uh, subjects like that. But uh, we are coming off the heels of Paul kind of being by himself for just this little spell here in Athens. Uh, Timothy and Silas had been uh, left behind in uh, back in Macedonia in that area, and well, Berea, I think specifically was the last town that they were uh, left in, and they're going to rejoin him here. And I don't know, I, I just um, the, the text doesn't say this uh, kind of you know in the last part of chapter 17 when Paul was greeted with kind of a, a, a tepid response from the Athenians. You know, there is the mention of, of a few people who believe, but. I, Paul is one of these guys who seems like he just thrives working with others. And, and everything that we've studied about him up till this point, we've seen him working with others. And I don't know, I just tend to believe that maybe there, there, there might have been, you know, kind of a, a tinge of discouragement, you know, kind of coming out of, out of the Athens uh, episode, and there then maybe probably would have been you know some great encouragement the moment he finally gets to rejoin his brothers here uh, in chapter 18. Like I said, the text doesn't say that. That's maybe me kind of reading more into that. Maybe that's me kind of reading myself into the <laughs> in, into you know the passage and putting myself in Paul's shoes. But uh, we are going to see him rejoin uh, or have his brothers rejoin him here in chapter 18. So. Yeah, you think about when people like Paul, he's such a go-big-or-go-home guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just swings for the fences. Uh, and I think it's good for him to have people around uh, as encouragement, you know, as having some different personalities. Mm -hmm. And that helps. I, I can see what you're saying there, how, how that would be helpful. And so um, we really, when we read through this, you don't get to, to really hear Paul's emotion and right. see that. You know, some of the epistles you, you do, and, right. and you feel that, um, and it's just a different side of him. But this is mainly just like, here are the facts. Here's where he went. Um, and so, but, but if you slow down and think through that, um, that would wear on a person. Um, yeah. And, and just not just the physical punishment he suffered, but a lot of the psychological stuff, too. Well, you know, the, the Thessalonian letter fits in right there, mm -hmm. uh, talking about the time that, 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 you know, he was in Macedonia there, was in Thessalonica, was in Berea, was in that region. Uh, and then, of course, they thought it best to, to send him away because, you know, trouble was, was a brewing. But in the Thessalonian letter, and maybe this is where I kind of got this from, mm. uh, in the first Thessalonian letter, uh, like in chapter 2, he talks about, uh, he says to them, We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, uh, in person, not in heart, and we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, and we wanted to come to you, uh, but Satan hindered us. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And maybe it's just that statement there, you know, willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we sent Timothy to you and he helped encourage you and so forth. But maybe there's just maybe something kind of not outright spoken there, but it's kind of a hint that, 
you know, man, I just, I, I really wish I could have been with my brethren. You know, that would have been the ideal thing. But hey, this is the way it goes. That's the life of a preacher. It's the life of a guy who's trying to spread the gospel in, uh, you know, the first century world. And so there's uh, the peaks and the valleys, and we roll with the punches. And so. Uh, that brings us here to the next leg of the journey, chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Let's just say a word or two of what we know about Corinth uh, because that's helpful. It's helpful for you especially if you end up studying the Corinthian letters. Uh, right. But it's even helpful here to, to know a little bit about the city of Corinth itself. Corinth uh, is a, was a major seaport city. Uh, which meant you had lots of commerce that came, came in there. And that meant as well that you had lots of sailors that came in there. Well, when you have a region where there's lots of money and there's lots of sailors, mm-hmm. what are you probably going to have? You're probably going to have a lot of wickedness. And, of course, when you read 1 Corinthians especially, uh, I think about chapter 6 in particular, and Paul talks about you know, you used to be these things. And he lists off all that stuff, all those sinful things that those Corinthian Christians, you know, their former manner of life, you know, you were those things, but now you've been washed and sanctified, etc., etc. That's some real clear indication that he is in the middle of, you know, take the worst of Las Vegas, Hollywood, New York City, wrap all that into one, that probably is a pretty good description of of what the city of Corinth was like. Uh, it was a big city, you know. I, I remember I, I taught Corinthians uh, last year, and I thought I made a note of kind of population-wise what uh, we were talking about. We may have been talking about as many as like a half a million people. So uh, this is a it's certainly uh, a place that is ripe for opportunity when you got a lot of people, and when probably a lot most of those people are wicked and entrenched in sin, well, these are the people who need the gospel. And so that's where the journey brings him. Which might be kind of daunting and intimidating. Yeah. You know, you you go, lone preacher or, you know, with some comrades, um, to a, a Las Vegas or, or whatever. And, and, and it feels like there's so much wickedness, there's so much terrible, ter- so many terrible things going on around me. Um, I think sometimes we're tempted to say, well, nobody's going to listen. You know, who's, who's going to respond to this? Um, you know, you, this, this guy, I don't know, I have this picture in my head. Go up to a biker gang, yeah. you know, and, and try to spread the gospel. What's going to happen? You know, um, so it could be a daunting, intimidating thing. But I, I think what you said um, shows that the people who were in darkness need the light the most. Mm-hmm. And so the light of the gospel shines brighter in those areas sometimes. Yep. Um, and so I think that this, this could have been a, a daunting thing at, at first. Um, and I think we're going to see throughout here that um, continues to be. Um, but people need the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, even in these terrible, wicked places, we cannot prejudge um, converts before you know there, there's no way we can look at someone and determine or look at a city and say well it's just so bad I, I can't do that um, no there, there are people there yeah I think there's I think we're gonna even see evidence in the text that this was daunting for Paul and maybe even it, he was a little bit fearful and that, right. that kind of 
is surprising to say that because we just yeah. we, we would talk about Paul like he's a superhero. I mean, this guy's just got a you know big big red letter S emblazoned right across his chest, and <laughs> uh, he's just you know super courage everywhere that he goes, and he's bold. But uh, I think when we get down to like verse nine, I think there's indication yeah. that uh, yeah he 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 maybe was kind of overwhelmed uh, a little bit at the prospects here. Um, verse two, when he comes to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, that's the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Let's just pause right there. This is a really helpful note for us uh, historically because uh, it helps you to kind of you know tie in some things that even just secular history uh, makes record of. And it also even helps us tie in some things, um, again, with the rest of, of Scripture. Um, we're talking here probably about 49 A.D. or so, uh, maybe depending on what um, calendar you're looking at, as to when this particular edict from Claudius uh, came forth. Uh, there was apparently, there's, there's historical records that apparently there was this great kind of disruption, maybe even kind of almost rioting, but this upswelling of fighting that was going on, and it seemed like there were Jews that were at the center of this. And I, I pulled it up here. I had it ready for us. Let me see if I can uh, quote it. There's a quotation from uh, an old piece of information that had been written in the first century, uh, and this is pertaining to that edict. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. So there's this mention of this Crestus who caused this, 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 this upswelling of this disturbance and that causes Claudius to say, all right, I've had enough of you Jews. Get out of here. Get out of Rome. Y'all go back home. The Crestus there is what causes you know, lots of speculation. There's a good indication, a good possibility that actually that Crestus may be Christ. That may be who that's referencing. Hmm. That there is this, again, this disturbance between possibly these Jewish folks who are kind of the purest Jews, and they just don't like it that some of these other Jews are believing in Christ. And we've noticed that all through Acts, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we've noticed the, the, the problem between uh, you know, these diehard Jews and then these Jewish Christians, uh, and of course even Gentile Christians as well. And... Um, and so there's lots of, certainly lots of commentators that believe that that may be who this Crestus was. It's just referencing Christ. Um, and so the point is, Claudius says, just get out of here. You know, I just want to deal with you, you, yeah. you pesky little Jews. Just get out of here. Get out of Rome. Go home. And for about five years, that is the case. What that means is, is that does mean that this helps give a little bit of insight to uh, the book of Romans a little bit. Um, you had Christians like this couple here, Aquila and Priscilla, that had been in Rome. And you had originally had, you know, probably a, a blending and a mix of some Jews and Gentiles that had become Christians. But now all of a sudden, all the Jewish folks, well, they got to go home. That then leaves there in the church at Rome just these Gentile Christians to kind of carry on. Then after the five years or however long exactly the period of time that uh, Claudius's uh, edict lasted, in fact, I think Claudius died at the end of it, and that's why it ended up being lifted and they were able to come back. Well, then you ended up having all of those Jewish Christians now coming back to Rome, 
And now they're having to try to figure out how to get along with these Gentile Christians who've been doing it on their own for the previous few years. Yeah. And that really is the impetus for Paul writing the letter, the, the Roman letter. Um, again, that's, that's kind of a total sidebar, but this is a helpful place uh, in the book of Acts, Acts 18 verse 2, that makes mention of that event uh, that kind of um, leads to the issues that exist in the Roman church. Um, this couple though, Aquila and Priscilla, um, this is the introduction to these guys and we have, I don't know, four or five different mentions of them in the New Testament, maybe a half dozen. Mm -hmm. And um, it is evident that this couple is very near and dear to Paul. And um, part of it is because of the fact that they are of the same trade. In fact, let's just go ahead and grab that real quick. He went to see them, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So they kind of had just a natural connection because of what they did for a living. Uh, the tent making, there's always lots of questions about that. Some have said that really what that indicates is, you know, like leather workers. Um, tent makers may be kind of, <laughs> we, we think of tent makers and it's like, I mean, you just, you just put some <laughs> sticks together and some cloth and you just pop it up. I mean, what, what's, the, what's the big deal there? Yeah. There's probably more to it than that. Right. Um, but these are guys who are, not guys, it's a guy and a gal, a husband and a wife, uh, who are very much kind of become uh, part of the, the team, so to speak. And these guys make a, several different moves uh, throughout the course of at least what the New Testament records for us so that they can be of service in the kingdom and be of help to Paul. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And I mean, you could, you could see what you were referring to, why Paul was drawn to them. They were workers, man. They, yeah. No matter where they were, they were huge influences. I mean, when Paul does write the letter to the Romans, it seems like they ended up in Rome again after yep. this ended. And uh, they had a, a church meeting in their house. Yep. Um, you know, he, he references, I think in 2 Timothy maybe, uh, about how they were in Ephesus again, yep. potentially. Um, Start charting all that on a map, and just, it's like we're we're just going to go where we can be most useful and most helpful. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the way that I always see their lives. I mean, I don't know about you. I hate moving. <laughs> yeah. It's it's such a drag. But uh, they saw opportunity, and um, they saw you know, and it, it's hard to know exactly what happened and inspired all those moves, but. You definitely see them on fire, and they're working, and they're they're zealous, and it's it's one of those things, wherever you are, there there are things to be done, and right. um and you don't have to do it alone either. It's helpful, you you know, a husband and wife combination. Um, if if you have a spouse that is pushing you to do the right thing, and you are both on board with the Lord, um, there there's just so so many good things that you can do, and. You know, a lot of the, we, we talked about Paul maybe getting discouraged in some of this. It's helpful when you have a strong spouse to yeah. spur you along. When one gets weak, the other helps them up. Right. Um, and, and that's such a, a beautiful thing to see there. Yeah. And we're going to see these guys uh, pop up again here at the end of, of the chapter and just more great things to be said about uh, both of them together. It is always interesting in the Bible. You always see those two names mentioned together, Aquila and yeah. Priscilla. It's almost like it's just one word. You know, right. Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, you don't ever read about them just talked about individually. And that, that that's probably just the Luke and the other author's way of just, it's the Holy Spirit's way of letting us know, man, there is such a blessing when a husband and a wife are on the same team spiritually because then everything else just kind of falls in 
uh, falls in place. I, the thought here of <laughs> the, the, they must have made it work well because the, they work together. Mm. <laughs> My wife likes it when I leave the house <laughs> and come to work for a little while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the thought that man they they not only were they working on the same team you know spiritually they're working on the same team in their in their day to day vocation their nine yeah. to five and yeah. um, you know I, I don't want to you know idealize their relationship because I know they would have had just as every married couple would have had problems and you know things you got to work through but man when you start you know at, at, at square one that the foundation is we're going to build our lives both together on Christ then the other things that we have to deal with in life are just significantly easier doesn't mm-hmm. make everything easy but everything is easier when we're on the same page uh, when it comes to our our soul and uh, putting the work of the kingdom. I mean, this is, again, these are just great kingdom workers um, who are, you know, kind of just attached at the at the hip with Paul. And um, like I said, we'll we'll see them pop up a couple more times. We'll see them once here at the end of this chapter. But here's the introduction uh, to this great this great couple in the Bible. I think it's impressive to think. Uh, you know, sometimes when when I consider Paul and his journeys. I'm like, well, he just walked around teaching the gospel, <laughs> you know. But how did he eat, you know? How, right. how did he make money? And right. and we see that here uh, during the week, they're making tents, and he would go on the Sabbath to reason in the synagogue and persuade Jews and Greeks, you know. Uh, just because we teach the gospel doesn't mean that um, you know that's all we do. Yeah. You know, sometimes uh, there are some people who there's a lot of I, I just want to say there's a lot of times when um, people who work nine to five jobs that they think, well, I'm not useful to the Lord, you know, because I'm not, you know, full time preacher. Well, Paul wasn't here either. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes he was, and, and we're going to actually see that. But right. Um, you know, sometimes we just wherever we are, we there are things we can do for the Lord. Um, and I don't expect that you know his. Uh, you know, he would reason with them on the Sabbath. I don't expect every other day of the week it was like, well, I'm not going to talk about the Lord at all, and I'm not going to do anything. I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of that. And, yeah. And that. But um, he still wasn't above working, you know, getting his hands dirty and, and getting in there, and uh, he, he wasn't too good for that. Yeah. And if, and if, 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 if that point is, is not, if it doesn't resonate with us when you talk about that in terms of Paul, okay, well, then let's talk about that in terms of, 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 of Aquila and Priscilla. Because here's two people that are not apostles, they're not professional preachers. These are ordinary Christians, and they saw the value of going to work, yeah. going to work for the Lord. Colossians three talks about. Uh, so they're they're just by their the way they conducted themselves, they're setting an example. So that's that, that that's that's one thing that they're doing to glorify the Lord in their lives. Uh, but yeah, I'm 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 going to guess as well that they probably also seized opportunities to talk with with others, clientele that maybe they dealt with. If nothing else, certainly talking with each other. And as Paul then comes, man, think about how great that'd be. Yeah. You know, you're, you're you're doing your daily work from nine to five, and at the same time while you're working, you're just engaging in conversation with the Apostle Paul. Man, that yeah. that would make work enjoyable for me. For sure. Yeah. Um, if I was working, you know, that kind of a job. Um, you know, it, it, it was the common practice of, of rabbis and scribes to have a trade. Um, it, my understanding is that, you know, you would train a young man 
um, you know, up until he was 12 or 13 when he gets, you know, bar mitzvahed, you know, at least that's what that's called today. And um, in, in whatever skill, whatever trade, maybe it's the family trade, and then when he turns 13, then that's when he begins devoting himself more fully um, to the study of, of the Word. Not that he doesn't do that before that, but that's when he kind of buckles down on that in preparation for life as a, you know, as a scribe or a rabbi himself. And of course, Paul... I mean, Paul was a Paul was a rabbi uh, yeah. in that sense. He was a teacher, and um, so he had this skill and this trade, and it comes in handy here because he is able to support himself. That doesn't preclude the possibility of receiving support, you know, from a church or from others to uh, to just do the work of of an evangelist uh, without. Uh, outside uh, or, or doing a separate job. I, I'm going to kind of refrain from using the word secular uh, just because, I don't know, it's something... When we say that, well, he's just got a secular job. Yeah. It almost comes across like, well, that's just not as important as those of us who are men of the cloth, <laughs> you know, who are part yeah. of the, the laity. Um, no. Right. No, every job, in the Colossians 3 sense, every job is is spiritual in nature, or it can be. And um, we need to look for those opportunities to, uh, to, to glorify and magnify Christ, even, even in our jobs. Yeah, amen. It doesn't matter what we do. If we do it to the Lord, we're, we're doing... I, I like this. You know, sometimes we separate, here's what I do in my physical life. Here's mm-hmm. what I do in my spiritual life. Yeah. How do you separate those? No, no we're, we there's, are one person. <laughs> there's no compartmentalizing of, of life. That's, uh, who owns the job bucket? God owns that bucket. Yeah. Who owns the 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 home family bucket? God owns that one too. And so, yeah, there's no separation of of all of that. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian everywhere and at all times. And so, um, here's just like I said, I, I like this these kinds of just reminders of. I mean, these are regular people, um, yeah. and they have to live daily life. And uh, we're going to do that to to God's glory. Verse 4, you've kind of already alluded to, Paul did reason in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so, as is his custom, he comes into a town, he's looking for a synagogue, didn't have one in Athens when he was there, but they do have one here in Corinth, so we're going to do some uh, synagogue work. Let me take that back. There There was one in Athens, wasn't there? I think so. There was a town, one of the towns that he stopped in, in the seventh chapter. Er, yeah, chapter seventeen, verse seventeen. He was reasoning in the synagogue, and that was in Athens. All right, one of the towns he was in earlier, though there wasn't a synagogue. And I just can't remember which one. Anyway, uh, it was uh, there when he converted Lydia when they first got into Macedonia. There Philippi. we go. Philippi. Yep. There we go. That's what I was thinking of. All right, so. Um, Corinth does have a synagogue, so so there is a Jewish presence there uh, in the town, and so he's going to use that as an opportunity to do some teaching. Verse 5, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word. How does the New American Standard say that? Verse 5. I was in chapter 17. Yeah, come on, get (laughs) back with me. My bad. Uh, Devoting himself completely to the Word. Well, both those. I love both those. Yeah. I mean, occupied with the Word. Um, I don't think that means that he was just like divorced from the, the regular world around him. He's just so laser-focused on the Bible. I think it just speaks to... I mean, he's just... He, he's he's involved in the work of an evangelist. Uh, yeah. He's occupied with the Word. He's testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, 
Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So this actually kind of brought something to my mind that I really hadn't thought about uh, before. I, I think for the longest time, I just kind of assumed that the way that this worked was, all right, the gospel is primarily, you know, we're taking it to the Jews until Acts 10 happens. And then Acts 10, well, we just go to, to everybody all the time. I, I, I'm going to say from this passage that it seems like Paul still kind of operated under, when he came into a new town, the first people that he came to were Jews. Kind of still following that same pattern. Then, if it was met with, with rejection and opposition, well, then now I'm going to turn to Gentile folks. And that seems to be the indication, at least here in Corinth, whether he did that exact same thing everywhere else. Um, I, I, like I said, I, I think I just kind of operated under the assumption that, you know, after Acts 10, all right, well, we can just go into any town. It really doesn't matter whether somebody's a Jew or a Gentile. We're just going to start uh, preaching to them first thing. No, it, it does actually seem like maybe, all right, we're still going to kind of follow that pattern, at least here for the maybe these first, you know, few, few years of, of the early days of Christianity where, you know, Jews in new places, they're going to get the first shot at this, and then we're going to see what their reaction is, and then we're going to, um, you know, proceed from there. In this particular instance, he's met with great opposition. Uh, the word reviled, I think in another translation just said insulted. You know, so now we just got folks just, you know, just levying insults at, at Paul. And so he does the shaking out of the garments. This is not... It's not the same thing as what we saw back in chapter 13 with the shaking off the dust of the feet, but I do think it's just kind of the same uh, symbolic gesture, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the washing of the hands, so to speak. Um, and then, of course, Paul's words make that very clear. You know, the, the gesture alone was not, uh, was not all. There was just words he said, your blood is on your own hands. I'm innocent. Uh, I've done what I'm supposed to do. You don't want it? All right, moving on. Yeah, and if the story ended there, you would think, man, that's that's bad enough, you know. But like, what follows is just amazing too. But um, something that I want to think about is verse five. Why was Paul able to devote himself to the word after you know Silas and Timothy came down? Was it just because well they're encouraging me now I can do that? No, it seems like they did bring some kind of gift, yeah. you know, monetary thing from the churches in Macedonia. Yeah. Maybe particularly in this case, just Philippi, um, but maybe some others at this point too. Like this is a huge point to think about when you're studying First and Second Corinthians, actually, of how um, of, of how this operated, how that worked. Um, we still see the love of the the Philippians, the Macedonians, that they had for Paul in order to send him funds mm -hmm. so he could be devoted to the way it shows how much they trust Paul yeah. um, to, to do what's right um, and how much they see that need that he has um, that they were willing to do that but again you know Paul wasn't just some kind of uh, you know he wasn't going to go into a new city and see how much money he can get out of them um, he he went and did what he had to do um, in order to you know survive and, and that sort of thing. Um, but he was able to do that more so. I, I think that just this this whole thing of the the resistance of the Jews, how much they, they firmly stood against him, there's just so much here that shows 
how difficult this situation was. I mean, it's just you're going to Corinth, a wicked city. The Jews, the religious people in this wicked city, they don't want to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, what am I doing? <laughs> um, but, you know, this, this whole situation, I, I think that we're just building on it step by step just to show how, how great, you know, the outcome, yeah. you know, final outcome is anyway. Um, the, the, there's, you know, the, the, there is that relief. I'm glad you pointed that out from verse 5. The, it seems like there was relief that was brought to, to, uh, to Paul so that he could devote himself to it. This certainly um, it seems to have been Paul's MO that his preference was that he did not have to, uh, to take from other churches. Uh, right. he, he makes mention of that in, in some, of his, some of his writings. Um, but, but when that relief was you know, provided and offered, it was still, you know, I'm, no doubt was, he was thankful for it. You know. The Philippian letter is probably the most uh, you know, detailed place in the Bible where he goes out of his way to talk about how much he appreciated uh, that kind of support. And I know, you know for me as a preacher, as someone who does receive support from, uh, from uh, you know, local congregation to do the work of of, of, of an evangelist. It is appreciated. And in an ideal world, I know a, a brother down in Florida recently who um, he, he's, he's stepping away from the pulpit uh, presently because he's trying to build his business to where he wants to get it to the point to where it's able to kind of be self-sustaining mm-hmm. and provide income to where he can then return back to the work of ministry and not have to be supported to do that because he's got, and I, I've, I've just appreciated the, uh, the the thoughtfulness, and that's that's kind of the Paul uh, sort of thinking here to be able to do that. And um, yes, and in an ideal world, we I, I probably speak on behalf of lots of other preachers uh, would love to be able to to do that, and perhaps in time maybe the Lord would bless opportunities to make it to where I don't have to rob from churches, and you know those those funds can be used in other. Uh, directions, but uh, we do see here certainly um, some biblical um, precedent for preachers working a separate job. I also see some precedent here for preachers receiving um, compensation to be able to do that work. They've got families and things, and uh, like you said, you got to eat <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, just basic regular needs. Um, the response here, though, of the people does, uh, it, it's not going to go away. It's not just Paul's, you know told them, hey, uh, blood's on your own head, I'm going to go to the Gentiles now, and okay, well, that ends that. Nope, there's actually more. (laughs) Verse 7, so he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And you know, that same expression was used to describe um, Cornelius, and that seems to maybe just indicate probably that this man was was, was maybe a Gentile uh, himself, kind of like Cornelius, but, but was... A believer and worshiper of, of of the one true God, and it's very handy. Verse seven: His house was next door to the synagogue, uh, hmm. so he's kind of just right there. Uh, verse eight: Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. We, we really just cannot. Overstate how significant this is. Significant this is that a ruler of the synagogue, you know, and that probably indicates the the man who would have been in charge of, 
you know, kind of getting things set up for the, the services on, on a Sabbath day, getting the speaker prepared, getting all of the, you know, the accoutrements all prepared and ready for that particular day. Uh, this is a man of some standing uh, in the Jewish community. Um, he ends up hearing and believing and becoming a Christian along with his household. And I, I don't think we need to kind of go into detail about the household uh, argument about, <laughs> you know, well, this must mean that like little babies and stuff were baptized too. We talked about that. What was it with the Lydia? Chapter her household? 16. Yeah. yeah. So just refer back to that if you want to uh, kind of uh, hear why th that's not a necessary thing that we can infer from this. Um, those who were able to believe, no doubt believed and, and obeyed the gospel. Um, and that has, again, has some good effects as well. Many other of the Corinthians, it says, hear and believe and are baptized. Um, but this is going to, 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 to probably kind of serve as, as a, 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 you know, a lightning rod thing that's going to cause problems for, for Paul in other ways. Yeah, you know, you, you think, how in the world does it say in verse 6, you know, that, that the Jews reject him, and he's, he's talking about this, but the leader of the synagogue obeys. <laughs> yeah. You know, this shows that, uh, for one, you can think on your own. Um, if, and this could go either way. Either uh, your leader, or if, if, I mean, no matter what kind of religious group you're talking about, you know, imagine a, a leader, um, they might say some things or do some things that you don't agree with. Um, and that could be good, that could be bad. I, I don't know. There's, there's different situations. This one, it seemed like the leader did the right thing and the, and the people didn't follow. They didn't, yeah. didn't like it. Um, it could be the other way around, too. Maybe your, your leader is leading you in the wrong way. Um, you can stand up and say, you know what, that's not right. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to listen. Um, and so it, it's just interesting to see that, that the leader here is one who actually uh, listens and obeys. So that's kind of cool. It's worth noting, too, just from verse 8, that continued pattern throughout Acts, there's hearing, there is believing, and that then culminates in baptism. Um, this is probably not one of the passages that we necessarily would, would cite to point that out. It's not the one, one of them that immediately comes to mind, but it just kind of is, is more you know butter on the toast. There's hearing, there's believing, and then that results in being baptized. That's, that's the way Christians are, are, are born. Um, I think it's interesting here. It doesn't necessarily say that Crispus was baptized um, because, you know, it said he believed. Then it says many of the Corinthians uh, were believing and being baptized. But in 1 Corinthians 1, we find out that Paul actually baptized Crispus. Uh, he, he was one of the only ones that, that he actually physically baptized himself. Yeah. Um, so it's like, okay, even though it doesn't say that, it's obvious that that happened. Right, right. And, 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 and that kind of speaks to something we've, we've pointed out a few times it, by this point in, in, in Luke's you know, detailing here that he doesn't always have to kind of spell out everything all the time. You know, by this point, if he talks about somebody becomes a believer, it, it kind of just already entails everything that we've noticed thus far in the first 17 chapters of Acts that, oh, okay, well, that must mean then that he heard the gospel and he accepted it by faith. And he confessed that faith before others. He repented and made a change and he was baptized. And Luke doesn't need to spell all that out because, again, that's abundantly clear by this point. Um, but yeah, if, if there was any doubt about that, 1 Corinthians 1 <laughs> does help to uh, clarify that for us. Um, verse 9, Then the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, 
Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So here's probably the, the indication uh, that, yes, Paul probably did have some, some doubts and some fears and some concerns uh, working in this you know, incredibly pagan city. That's the other thing about uh, Corinth. It, it wasn't just the fact that you, know, you got just a bunch of sinful people. You, you got a bunch of people that are involved in, in pagan idolatry and the practices that go along with that. And uh, he's just surrounded by that on every side. And, you know, you'd like to think you come to a place like that and you find some God-fearing people, some of the Jewish folks, and you'd like to think, okay, well, at least I got some allies there. And to come to find out, yeah, a good chunk of those, they're not your allies. Got a few, but the majority of those Jews, they're not your allies. And so it's like, Man, we're vastly outnumbered here. You got Paul, you got Timothy and Silas now, you got Aquila and Priscilla, okay? You can add Crispus to the group. Seems like Titius Justice here is at least a, a friend. Um, got a few, but man, there's, there's, there's concern. And, I, you know, is that any different for us today? I mean, right. we, we are. Uh, Christians are vastly outnumbered. I don't know. I don't know what the percentages would be, but it's a lot. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I guess only God really knows. You know what those actual numbers and figures are. But um, I'd like to hope maybe they're a little higher than than what I think that they are. But um, who knows? But still, there's that feeling. You know, you you get out, and you're in the community, or you go into the, our schools, or you go into the workplace, and it's pretty clear we're we're in the minority, mm -hmm. and um, and there are just some some unsettled feelings about that from time to time. And at the end of the day, um, we're we're, we're going to have to just rely upon the same words that the Lord said here to Paul: "Don't fear, I'm with you." That's that's the first important thing. I'm, I'm with you. But then the other thing that he makes mention of is he says, there's also others here. Yeah. And, and, and that is what we sometimes forget is there, there are other people. There are, you know, I think about, um, you know, I go, go all the way back to the story with Elijah. When Elijah went holed up in a cave and he's like, it's just me, Lord. I alone, you know, there's nobody <laughs> else. And the Lord says, nope, there's actually several who have not yet bowed the knee. And yeah. so... There's a presence there, and what we need to do is we need to find those people, you yeah. know. Uh, and this is probably maybe as good a place as any to just kind of point out that Christianity was never meant to be a solo endeavor. There is God's intention has always been for His people to have a sense of, of community. Uh, that's why the local church uh, is part of God's plan. Uh, that we would bond ourselves with, with fellow Christians in a given location and we're going to work together and we're going to lean upon each other and support one another. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, we're going to encourage each other in the fact that we're not alone and we've got, we've got others who are like-minded and we need to, um, you know, we need to find comfort in that and, like I said, comfort in the Lord Himself that He's with us. There, man, there's so much here. You just think about... Paul is not a robot. Um, you know, he's, he's a real person. And 
you you think you he he's experienced being beaten with rods, been stoned, and so many things. And I can imagine the way it's looking for him right now. It's like this is kind of familiar, you know. I've, I've been in this position before. Yeah, you know, I know I've, what's next, and it's coming. Yeah, but um, and you you might think, you know, Paul. There were some people who already believed. It's like okay, maybe I've already taught as many as are going to believe, and mm-hmm. so you know, I've done my job. Maybe I should go on. Um, but you know he has to be strengthened. That's we we need to consider that and think about that. Yeah. Even he needed that encouragement. Yeah, I think just the same way that Elijah felt, he probably felt that same thing too. It's like yeah, all, all these prophets of Baal. You know, he just had that great victory, but you know, still it's like man, I, I'm doing all this work and, and nobody else is is doing anything. Uh, that's not true. You know, you have. Uh, others that, that definitely are still there. Um, so don't be afraid. And there are many more people there. Um, and sometimes I, I think I'd like to go this direction too. Um, like insert yourself here and then imagine, imagine having that conversation with God. It's like, I've talked to everybody in Somerset that I can. You know, nobody's listening. Nobody's obeying the gospel. <laughs> can you imagine what God would say to that? Yeah. You know, maybe something along these lines. I still have many people in this city. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's our job to get out there. You know, sometimes we get discouraged because a certain number of people don't listen. Maybe the majority of the people don't listen, but God still has, has people there. Mm-hmm. You know, what would it be like to face God in judgment? And, and he tells you this. It's like, no, there was still a lot of people that you didn't talk to that you should have. Um, that, that's scary. And even sometimes the people that we talk to today, well... Six months from now, yeah. the, actually, the, the door may be better opened because of circumstances in life and things that happen. And like, okay, I don't, I'm not going to like immediately just mark that guy off my list and I'm never going to make any effort again. No. Sometimes yeah. what people are not interested in at all today, six months from now, a year from now, a week from now, hmm. they can become very interested in. You know, yeah. you get a sick child or you lose a loved one or you have a near-death experience and man... I didn't care about that God stuff before, but now I kind of do, and I'm looking. And so, uh, yeah, and maybe even that even accounts for part of what verse 11 says, that Paul stays in this place a year and a half. This is a significantly longer stay. Uh, This is more of a residency for Paul than than lots of the other places that he's visited and gone to. And so uh, there's much work to be done in a place where, again, you got a huge population, you you got a bunch of godless people, and um, and even the people, even even the contingent of those people who claim to be God fearing, a lot of them uh, still need the Lord too. Um, the admonition there in verse nineteen, or excuse me, verse nine, um, about about not being afraid, but but you need to keep on speaking and not be silent. And um, you have to imagine, kind of as you were painting the picture a minute ago. Because of Paul's past experiences, there probably was a little bit of, you know, some reservation here uh, in some of his dealings, a little bit of hesitancy. Um, and so, um, nope, uh, remember, I, I, I set you apart for a specific reason. And it was not to sit around and be silent and just, I'm going to do the quiet Christian thing. No, I set you apart for the work of going and be one who's going to do some speaking. You're going to go to these uh, people and say the things that, are probably not going to be very popular. You know, kind of, I keep going back to the Elijah comparison. Elijah went and said to Ahab what was not popular at all. 
you know, and all the other people of Israel. I mean, they, they, they were all either sitting on the fence, so to speak, or they were over here just involved in just flat-out idolatry entirely. Uh, and so for him to come along and say to Ahab, no, you're the troubler of Israel, and then to stand in front of all those people and to say, you know, get off the fence, pick a side here, um, and then to be ran out of town by Jezebel, um, no, it's, this is not retirement time, Elijah. And kind of maybe maybe in a lesser sense to Paul here, nope, it's not. This isn't time for you to kind of back off. No, this is the time to keep pushing the gas pedal forward and keep going. Actually, maybe maybe what the Lord saw here was that hey, with this Crispus, hey, this is now kind of the, we're over the hump, and this is what's really going to set things off for uh, you know just an explosion of uh, of opportunities here in the city of Corinth. But don't be silent. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool, too, to think how um, it, it seems like there's a direct correlation between being afraid and being silent. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's almost like speaking about the Lord and teaching others is the opposite of being afraid. And if you really think about it, that's true. You know, the thing that stops us the most from talking to people is fear. It is. Um, and a lot of times our fear is much different, I think, than what Paul's fear was, you know. The Lord told Paul here, the, the thing he's going to protect him from is that no man will attack you in order to harm you. You know, do we have that kind of, uh, you know, dangers associated with sharing the gospel with people? You know, I, I don't, I can't recall It's possible. It's possible. Yes, it is. But mo it is. Most likely, no. Right. Yeah. There's, there's just, I, I can't remember the last time that I talked to someone about the Lord and they beat me up or, yeah. you know, tried to kill me. Right. Um, that, that isn't quite the thing that happens most of the time. Most of the time we're afraid to talk to people because, well, they're going to look at me different. Yes, there's the fear of, so we, we fear rejection. We fear we're going to, we, we fear we're going to offend somebody. We fear just the confrontation aspect. Sometimes, sometimes the fear is within ourselves. We fear that we are inadequate for the task. There's the fear of failure. You know, some people just don't like, and none of us like being told no, but for some it's such a crippling thing that they never do anything and we become like the, you know, the one talent man. Well, I'm just going to go bury it in the sand. Uh, we're, we fear how we're going to be perceived. I know, especially when you're younger, that that's a big concern. You, mm -hmm. know, you don't want to be looked at as like a a dork or a Jesus freak or, you know, the other kind of condescending things. Sometimes it's just the fear of, you know, stepping out of our comfort zone and doing something that's not, you know, just immediately natural for us. Um, I think we can get to a, a place in our lives where it becomes more natural. True. But for a lot of us, maybe it's not the natural thing, you know, to engage in religious conversation with folks. But um, that's why it's important to not... To not sit on the sidelines and be and be silent, um, yeah. Um, so uh, he stays a year and a half here uh, in this place, teaching the word of God uh, among them. And you know, thinking about the fact that Paul stayed here for such a significant period of time, uh, probably again helps us with uh, understanding the level of investment that he had in the Corinthian church. It's why he wrote two really long letters. To, to, to the Corinthian church? I mean, two. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the two that we have are, I mean, they're big ones. And he, he talks yeah. about everything. And it, it seems like he knows, you know, lots of personal things that are going on there. And so uh, a lot of that's due to the fact that he's here for a long time on his initial go-round with them. Yeah. Verse 12. Here's the but. <laughs> but. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, 
the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And so we're seeing something that's, that's really just a repetition of what had happened uh, a couple of chapters. Well, chapter 17 was at the issue with uh, Jason and... Uh, or was that 16? 17. Yeah. Um, you know, when they came and said these are people who've turned the world upside down and they're telling people to act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, etc. Uh, this is just someone, again, saying something that's just, just false. It's yeah. just not true. Um, certainly what Paul was bringing was, was different to their ears. It was different than what they had done. Um, but it was not in the way that they painted here. He's teaching people to worship God contrary to the law. That's just not so. He wasn't telling people, hey, you know, your Old Testament, just tear it up and burn it and, you know, yeah. just do what you want willy-nilly. That's just not, just not so. But that is, the, that is just kind of the M.O. of the way a lot of these opponents of, of the Lord worked back then. And the truth is, it's the way it works a lot today, you know, where people just say kind of slanderous things or like, you know, partial truths and you know, we're going to accentuate the other part of it that's just the total fabrication um, in order to, to, to kind of poison people's minds against, against the truth. And I wonder if there's some, connecting this back to what you were saying at the beginning of the chapter with the reason why uh, the Jews were thrown out of Rome. I wonder if, if some of these types of arguments, you know, it, it was it maybe sort of the same thing had happened there. And so now you may have Jews that were thrown out of Rome, mm -hmm. that were upset because it's like, you guys got us thrown out. And yeah. so they have that like sort of preconceived notion, that, that idea. And so it fuels their hatred even more. Yeah. Um, and so you, you think things like that happen. Um, and, and people feel uh, sometimes jaded uh, or or attacked by Christianity, um, you know, by the truth. Um, and sometimes, you know, we fight, and this, this might be going off on a tangent a little bit, but sometimes we find people that we're trying to teach that someone who was a Christian before had said something, you know, completely boneheaded and, and messed it up for them, you know, and, and we we're sort of fighting this losing battle, it seems like, mm -hmm. trying to reach those people. But, um, you know, we, we can't let that stop us, you know, you know, people making mistakes in the past or even people probably doing the right thing yeah. to push people further away. Um, it's just this shows how how people get get locked into their own viewpoints, their own ideas, um, and they just will not budge. Yeah. Um, we probably mentioned because I didn't say it, but you know, this Gallio is this is a, a helpful time marker. Gallio is the proconsul, or it's just kind of another term for like a governor of of Achaia. And so we're talking here about uh, around 51 A.D. So we're a couple years into this, you know, the the edict that Claudius had given, and um, and uh, you know, they they bring this trouble to Paul. You know, I, I go back to the previous verses where the Lord had promised Paul, nobody's going to attack you or harm you. All right, so yeah. you don't have to worry about, you know, getting stoned and that sort of stuff. But he didn't promise him that there wasn't going to be trouble uh, right. because there is still uh, trouble brewing. Um, verse 14, uh, in response, When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, 
I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So, uh, <laughs> Gallio here kind of has, you know, really kind of the same attitude that it seemed like the emperors and a lot of the other, um, you know, uh, Roman officials had towards the Jews, and that is, you're just, you're just pesky, you know, I don't want to be bothered with this. This is stuff to do with, you know, your all's little religion. Um, you know, one of the things we need to be reminded of is that uh, Judaism was an official, officially licensed religion. Christianity was not, and so that's that, that's where the trouble often came with 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 Christians, uh, is that well they're not an officially you know recognized religion, and so if they're coming along and saying things that are different, all right, well that 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 is where some trouble comes, and that seems to be kind of where they're um, where they're trying to drum up this trouble. But Gallio, to his, to his credit, he's not, I'm not having any of it. Um, he says some of the same things that Pilate said yeah. to Jesus, or, or to the crowd, but he actually does something about it and says, you know, get away from me, I'm not messing with it. Yeah. Pilate took a different approach. A cowardly way, yeah. Um, so there's, there's a sense here in which this Gallio kind of serves as a unexpected uh, hero to a degree, I suppose, uh, and just like, get out of here, go on. Um, verse 17, But they all see Sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Um, we believe this is probably the same Sosthenes that's mentioned in the first Corinthian letter as well uh, and is uh, described as a, as, as a brother, uh, as a Christian. Um, I don't really know what to say about this because this is really like between this and then just the mention of his name in First Corinthians, that's all that we know about this guy. And I just kind of, I don't know, I guess I just want to say I feel sorry for him. But, you know, he ended up being the, the, the beneficiary, or not the beneficiary, but on the receiving end of, you know, just uh, the ugliness of, of these Jewish people at this time. I think it's interesting that he is noted as the leader of the synagogue here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for those of you paying attention, we have seen a leader of the synagogue already, Crispus, yeah. Yeah. who probably was not the leader of synagogue anymore after he, you know, became a Christian because they wouldn't allow that. Yeah. Um, this is potentially the second leader of the synagogue who's been converted. Yeah. Um, shows the power of the gospel. Yeah. Um, and I mean, for what he experienced there, the the beating, that's that's really interesting. Um, I. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming that means that he was listening to Paul and was becoming persuaded and had converted maybe at this point, or it's a little unclear there. Um, but I think we do see 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, um, probably the same guy. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's just an interesting connection. Yeah. It. <laughs> the Lord promised Paul no harm was going to come to him, but he didn't promise that harm might not come to other uh, right. of his people, and and Sosthenes is is the one who who takes it for the team uh, on this yeah. occasion. Um, no, I'm not. I don't want to laugh or make light of that. It's, no, it's no, the no, brother no. in Christ. Um, verse eighteen, um, and this is kind of uh, unofficially this little paragraph here. Um, this is kind of the 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 end of the second journey. 
uh, I take it. Um, because kind of here at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of this chapter, we're going to get the mention of, of, of Apollos and kind of get a little bit of info about him. But then really kind of beginning in, in chapter 19 is really kind of the bulk of, I guess, the, the third journey starting. So, yeah. so let's notice this, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers, and he set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So here's these folks willing to you know, go with Paul to a new place. Um, you know, and if you're a tent maker, I guess it's a little easier to do that because you can just make yourself a tent wherever you go. That's true. It's helpful. <laughs> Definitely handy. Then there's this note at the end of verse 18 that uh, is cause of lots of speculation and question. And, and Jason and I were talking about this before we started recording, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to profess to have the answers to all the questions people have about this. At Sincrea, it says that Paul had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Um, commonly, you'll hear folks you know, try to find all right, other biblical vows, all right, and, and especially a vow that had something to do with the hair. Okay, So the immediate jump is to, oh, well, maybe this is the Nazarite vow. You read in the book of Numbers about um, you know, people taking a Nazarite vow. Yeah, probably the most famous example of it would be in the book of Judges, and that is Samson. Uh, he was under a Nazarite vow, and amongst the aspects of that was that you were to not cut your hair. Well, what's this? It says Paul is cutting his hair. So <laughs> is that what, how could that be fitting here? Well, this may mention that Paul had taken the vow and he had let his hair grow, and then this is him now cutting the hair after the vow had concluded. I guess that's a possibility. The problem with, with that is that it's then pointed out, well, I'm not really sure Paul could be under the Nazarite vow because part of the Nazarite vow was that you were not able to drink uh, any of, or eat or drink anything from the fruit of the vine. And so if he's a Christian, he needs to be able to take the fruit of the vine every Sunday when he partakes of the Lord's Supper. So surely he's not going to take a vow that's going to prevent him from being able to observe the Lord's Supper. So there's like lots of just question about that. Are we just talking about just an entirely different vow altogether? Uh, truth is we don't know. Even just saying the Nazarite vow thing is a, is a complete inference that you know, there's there's not really any basis for just concluding that it has to be the Nazarite vow. You had an interesting little note that you knew about when it pertained, if, if it was the Nazarite vow and what people then did with the hair. Talk to us about that. Yeah, well, it seems like and I don't have any kind of sources. You're the expert I, on well, this. Well, let's just go with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you might need to, and I'm saying you as in anyone who's listening, uh, look into it yourself. I don't remember where I got this from, and so... Uh, 90% sure I'm not making it up, <laughs> but there I've heard it said that during this time period um, that there was a tradition to go along with the Nazarite vow that people would cut their hair before they started the vow, and then during the vow they would let their hair grow out, and then at the end of the vow, um, as sort of like offering a sacrifice to the Lord, they would cut their hair again and then sort of offer up that hair as a sacrifice um, with with whatever that they were sacrificing, however that worked. Um, and so potentially that could be that. Either he's beginning his vow or ending the vow, yeah. if it was the Nazarite vow. Don't know what to do with the uh, observance of the Lord's Supper. No idea. Um, and, I mean, there's just so much that we don't know about this. Um, you know, probably the last two minutes of me describing that is completely worthless because it doesn't really matter in the whole grand scheme of things. Yeah. 
Um, well, the you know, it could have just been just a vow of, uh, one commentator had said, perhaps it was just a vow of, of gratitude to God for, you know, his, his deliverance of Paul through these various, you know, difficulties. And, and that's certainly possible. And, you know, there may have even, you know, Paul could have just made up his own vow, you know. It didn't have to be some official state-recognized vow. Um, <laughs> he definitely wasn't doing it to be, you know, observing the Lord's commandment because yeah. that was, you know, a Jewish thing. And, right. Um, so I, I don't think he was looking at this as a religious observance, as more as much as a cultural thing. Um, you know, maybe maybe doing something, you know, more keeping in mind being more dedicated to the Lord for a certain period of time. I mean, we, we see fasting and that sort of thing mentioned several times. And yeah. so it's one of those things, there's nothing wrong with it. Right, um, and fa- and fasting would be something I would kind of consider, kind of like a, a vow, um, you know. And there's not a lot in Scripture about vows, except I think about in Ecclesiastes, is it chapter five that talks about if you are going to vow a vow to God, you you, you better keep it. Yeah. you know that's a serious sort of thing. And and I think Paul here's a good example of someone he had made some kind of a vow, and he was going to. He wasn't going to take something that he couldn't keep or something that was going to compromise his Christianity in some way. And so just a good example of like, all right, if you're going to make vows and promises, you just better not do that rashly. It better be something you're, you're, you're going to be able to see through to the end because God expects us to be people of our, of our word. That's just kind of at, at the core of, of who and what we are as Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, then verse 19, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. That is, he left Aquila and Priscilla there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him, verse 20, to stay for a longer period, he declined. Um, thoughts on the reason for declining, you know, staying there? I, 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 I don't know contextually of uh, any specific reasons why this was. I don't know that this is talked about in other places as to why, at least on this one occasion, uh, he... He, you know, didn't didn't seize upon what seemed like kind of an eager audience. You know, yeah. that that's the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, you have sometimes these places where audiences are resistant, and he stays a year and a half, <laughs> <laughs> and then here comes to a place where hey, you got some folks that are kind of chomping at the bit, and uh, no. Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to know. It, you, you don't know what's going on in his head. You don't know maybe the Lord was behind that and because before he had tried to go to Asia Minor and was not allowed, um, you know, he sees he goes back to Antioch. Maybe he needs a little, you know, recharge, refuel session um, because we know he does go back to Ephesus. We're right. going to see that definitely next chapter. Right. Um, and so it, maybe it's one of those things. He, he stops there and, and starts making some headway. It's like, okay, I, I can do some good here. I need I need to be in the position to where I can. Um, and so maybe he had some things he needed to do. Uh, you know, maybe there was some other things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. Um, whatever it was, he did make it a priority to get back. Yes. So um, you know, there's that. You know, and thinking verse 18, he was keeping a vow. Uh, when you know they wanted him to come to stay and that sort of thing, uh, verse twenty-one. There, you know, I'll I'll return again if God wills. Um, that's that's such an amazing thing just to to realize. Okay, yeah, I will do that if if you know God willing, mm-hmm. which is a phrase I think we need to use more. Yeah, more yeah. often. Um, 
it may be that, you know, so he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. Um, maybe he saw this as an opportunity for, for them to be involved in, in you know, kind of helping with some of the teaching there. Um, there may have been some anxiousness to get back to Antioch. Of course, that's the, you know, the place that kind of serves as the, the starting point and the ending point for these first couple of journeys and get back to report to them. It may be... Well, no, Ephesus, I can't do that now because I have to wait until part three of the journey. That's when you all are scheduled for. <laughs> no. Maybe. Uh, yeah, but, but yeah, we talked about that with, yeah. you know, how the Holy Spirit had, you know, prevented him from going to certain places before. And there was any number, a number of reasons for, for why that possibly was. Maybe they're just people weren't ready for it at that time. Maybe Paul was not ready for it at that time. And the Spirit knew it. And uh, maybe on this occasion, it doesn't say that the Spirit's preventing him from staying there, but this may be just Paul recognizing some things about himself or about the people or about, again, some of his fellow travelers. And uh, But verse 21, But on taking the leave of them, he does say, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. So, verse 22, When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed... And he went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Maybe right there in verse 23, uh, in the middle of that verse is where we're, we would kind of put the marker as that's where the third journey then begins. Um, uh, going back through, you know, as has been the custom in the previous journeys, all right, let's kind of stop by and visit some of the folks that have, uh, we, we've kind of helped get started and let's check on them, see how things are going there. Always a great thing to do. Uh, before then heading on to some of these, you know, virgin territories. And that's, Paul, Paul talks about that in Romans about, that's his preference. His preference is to go to places where the gospel had never been before, but it doesn't mean that he never stopped and spent time with brethren in places that he had been. Um, now, that's important. That's an important thing. You know, when, even if, if we're able to teach someone and, and they're converted to the Lord, um, Sometimes I think we get the idea of, okay, well, th we've got another convert. Let's move on to the next one. Yep. And you forget about, well, people need strengthening and encouraging and, um, and, and constant. I, I mean, it's not like you learn it once and then it's good. Okay, I got it all. You know, yeah. See you later. Uh, no, he, he sees the need. As much as he was a pioneer of the gospel, like you were saying, uh, he still sees that need to strengthen the disciples and, and go back and encourage them, give them uh, you know, more teaching, help them with whatever situations that they're going through. Um, you know, it's not like we don't, we don't learn it all at the beginning. Mm -hmm. you know, it takes a while to grow, uh, and, and Paul definitely saw the need um, for, for good teaching after yeah. that. Well, that's, so that, that, that wraps up the third preaching journey. We're talking about probably two and a half, three years worth of time there that we've just covered in you know a, a couple of chapters, um, but a, a good chunk of, of Paul's life. Um, before we kind of put a, put a complete bow on the second journey, though, we then get this last little paragraph here at the end of chapter 18. And who knows? Maybe this, the introduction of the man that we're going to be talked about, uh, be talking about here in verse 24, it may be the presence of this guy maybe played some part or role in Paul's decision to leave Ephesus for the time being. So verse 24, who are we talking about? Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. 
he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Let's just stop right there. That's a great description. Yeah. You know, I mean, I go back to like Acts 10 and those great descriptive terms that are given about Cornelius. This is right up there as far as in great little resumes that Luke... Uh, you know, describes for some of these folks. The mention there of that he's a native of Alexandria, um, we really can't downplay that because uh, what that means is that means this is probably a really educated man. This would be like saying, um, here's the, our recent graduate from Harvard University. You <laughs> yeah. know, this, this is a guy who's got the total package. He's a great speaker. He's got a good mind because he's competent in the Scriptures. Does the New American Standard use a different word? Mighty you? in the Scriptures. Mighty in the Scriptures. All right, that's even better. Hmm. Um, instructed in the way of the Lord. Fervent in spirit. I, I, I've, I've, I've heard before some folks kind of debate about spirit there. Of course, if you were reading the original text, you know, the, the S is not capitalized or lowercase. They didn't, yeah. you didn't have that. So the translators have to determine whether it's talking about spirit in the sense of, you know, the Holy Spirit or whether it's just talking about, you know, as if your, your, your own spirit. Um, I, I think this is, I think it's going to be pretty evident. Uh, this is talking about his own spirit. Uh, and, and when you couple it with the word fervent, I think it's just describing, he, he's a passionate guy. Yeah. You know, when you heard him preach, not only was it eloquent, but man, there was, you know, passion and, and fervor uh, mixed into all of that. Yeah, and, and maybe like he was spiritual, you know? Not, yeah. Uh, as opposed to physical and relying on that, you know? He was powerful in the scriptures, and so it's definitely a, a spiritual thing. Yes. You know, it, it's not something his own wisdom or, or anything like that. It was, uh, the power was in, in the scripture, I think. Yeah. And he teaches accurately the things about Jesus. Then the last part of verse 25, though he knew only the baptism of John. Um, this is another place where I'm just going to tell you I, I don't have an answer for this. Um, how can you... <laughs> it's, it's odd that he would be able to know and teach accurately the things about Jesus, but then have stopped short of knowing um, anything other than just John's baptism. Uh, of course, part of what Jesus taught was was uh, a baptism that was different than John's. You know, when you read in the Great Commission, um, that's, that's a different kind of baptism being talked mm -hmm. about there. Uh, being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's not the baptism of repentance that John uh, was baptizing folks with. Um, and the truth is, there's, you know, there's, what is it, six, seven different kinds of baptisms that are talked about in the Scriptures. Um, and so he has a knowledge of one, but the point is, he has an incomplete understanding. Um, like I said, I, I don't know the answer as to why he could know, you know, all the way up to this point, and then the rest of it he doesn't know. Um, thoughts? I mean, it, it's just, there are so many possibilities, there's so many unknown variables that it's hard to tell. I mean, he was from uh, Alexandria, which was in Egypt. Uh, maybe he, he had been there a long time. I, I mean, yeah. uh, don't know how old this guy is necessarily, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's possible that maybe he, he even, you know, was in J Jerusalem or Judea at the, the time of John, um, you know, or, or, the region wherever he was, maybe Galilee, but um, 
Maybe there was like some kind of person who followed John, who moved, you know, there's, there's so many things that we could say that we can come up with that. What, whatever it is, uh, he does not seem to be acquainted with the full story of Jesus. Yeah. Um, there was a, a lot of missing information there. And, and, you know, the amazing thing is he was able to use scripture um, to show, you know, the parts that he knew, Yeah. you know, and, um, and I don't know if it was, he didn't know the resurrection um, you know, the, the power of that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's hard to know. I know, it's just, it just but. begs so many questions. Like, all right, so we're, we're here in the, the early 50s AD now, and so we're, you know, about 20 years past that time. And you'd think by this point, it's just kind of common knowledge, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, that's saying that through a 21st century lens of how quickly information circulates and... Uh, especially as you pointed out, being from you know coming from Alexandria, all right, well that's a kind of off to the side, away from kind of the 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 epicenter of of the, the Jewish religion and even the epicenter of Christianity. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, lots yeah, of possibilities. There, there are, and I mean, when you think about that, um, people. I don't know, get all kinds of ideas from all kinds of different places. And it, it's hard to know. Each individual person almost, it seems like, uh, you know, if you go and talk to people in the community, it's like where they've got their, their viewpoints and their beliefs and, and that sort of thing from, it's like, I, I don't know. You know, some of the ways that things come together, it's hard to tell. But um, I think it is impressive just to see the background of this guy um, and to see how, you know, he was eloquent. He was well learned. Um, side note, in, in my opinion, he he could have been the writer of Hebrews. It's a potential. It's a possibility. Yeah, um, that's yeah. But circulated. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's it's just we don't know. Well, here's the thing. Uh, I, I do find it interesting that Luke does not refer to him as a false teacher. Mm, uh, I, I don't think true. that Aquila and Priscilla are going to treat him like a false teacher. He simply, he has a limited knowledge, and so he's speaking on just what he knows. And what he knows is correct, it's just not the full thing. And th th this is just another place and another reason why we just need to be careful about lobbing out and referring to people as false teachers. You know, when you read like, for example, First and Second Peter, Peter lays out some very specific criteria about you know, who you call a false prophet and yeah. and what that means. Um, here's a guy who's just he's just not he just doesn't have all the information that he needs. But much like some of those other people that we studied earlier in Acts, like like Cornelius or like an Ethiopian eunuch, when you have sincere people who don't have all the information yet, but when you get them the information that they need, what do you expect is going to happen? What you expect is going to happen is all right. Well, they're going to accept that. And I imagine then, uh, then we could expect Apollos, once he gets the information he needs, well, he's, he's going to take that and he's going to put that into his teaching and into the things that he says uh, so that he then is able to present the fullness of, of the gospel and the fullness of what uh, preachers uh, like himself uh, need to be about the business of. And that's, that's a good point. You know, he, at this point, is uh, sincere but ignorant. Yeah. Um, you know, once you learn the truth, though, you cannot continue, uh, you know, if you can't continue being sincere 
if you don't, right. you know, do something about it. One or that. the other has to go. Exactly. And so uh, he does that. I, I, I want to point out here the thing, like the one thing that it mentions here that he has a misunderstanding about is baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do we know people that, you know, are religious, have very good, teach really good things about Jesus, mm-hmm. but have a, a misunderstanding of what baptism is? Yeah, yeah, I think so. How do we look at them? As a false teacher, right. as a false prophet, or as another Apollos that just need to be instructed more completely in the way of the Lord. Yep. Um, and I think that should change how we view that sort of thing. Well, and that is the the, the kind of the last little part here, and, and I think it's probably the most significant part for us, and that is in, in how we deal with, with folks who have an incomplete understanding about something. And Aquila and Priscilla, this is kind of one of the, maybe the shining moment of what the Bible records about them, at least in, in my mind, is uh, to what they do here. So let's look at what they do to him. Verse 26, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I really appreciate um, the emphasis there on that they took him aside. Um, And this is going to be me doing, let me get on my little preacher soapbox for a second. Um, There is nothing good to be gained from coming to, whether it's the preacher or or really just anybody, but especially the preacher, (laughs) after he's preached a sermon in the foyer where there's a million people around trying to shake hands and there's all kinds of attention being, you know, kind of funneled toward the preacher sometimes. Um, That's just not the place for a rebuke. Um, I know especially for myself, after I've got done preaching, I'm I'm hot and sweaty. (laughs) My, you know, adrenaline is, you know, still kind of coursing and... Uh, you know, I'm kind of ti- physically just tired. And I'm, I'm not saying that if I say something wrong that I don't want it pointed out to me, but there is much to be appreciated for someone who kind of recognizes uh, I don't want to create a scene for this person, whether it's the preacher or a, or a Bible class teacher or whoever it is. Um, I don't want to, to address this in such a way that, you know, uh, strips him of his dignity uh, or would be cause for other people to uh, to look down on him and damage his influence. It, there's just something, all right, here, here's something that maybe I had a question about or here's something that, yeah, I mean, he, he just was, was wrong. Uh, and it could just be a matter of I, I misspoke uh, it, it, or it could just be I, I'm, just, I'm just flat wrong. You know, I have a, a wrong understanding about that. But I'm very appreciative of folks who will kind of do this pulling aside, or I'm going to wait until the crowds have dispersed, uh, or I'm going to send you an email on Monday. You know, again, uh, folks that have a, a sensitivity toward, you know, kind of the, the, the work and effort that goes into a, a preacher's work on Sunday, um, hey, I'm get him some come down time, and then I'm going to get back with him in a couple days. I, I think there's just some mindfulness in, in the mind of Aquila and Priscilla about that, that we don't want to damage this young guy. Uh, we want to go about this in a way that's really going to be helpful for him. And then in, if it's helpful to him, then he's then going to be able to be a help to all these other people as well. Yeah, I'll tell you, the, one time I was preaching, and, and after I, I made a comment about, about something, and, and 
this guy raised his hand. It was like, uh, and I, so I called on him. I mean, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> and he, he was like, uh, no, actually, that's not right. Uh, I was like, what? <laughs> like, uh, it, it just stopped me in my tracks. I was like, what, what did I say? Did, is it wrong? Like, I, I just was thinking, man, is everything I'm doing a lie? What, what's going on with this? Yeah. And it just totally just shook me. Turned out later, I, actually, I was not <laughs> mistaken. Um, but it was just that whole scene could have been avoided. And, you know, my rationale, I, I wasn't a very experienced preacher at the time. Um, you know, it, it shook me up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, I, and like you were saying, if I'm teaching something that's wrong, please tell me. Sure. You know, I, I do want to hear it. Um, but that, you know, there's, there's a time and a place, and there's, there's a way to do it. Now, what some people say, though, is, well, you know, you're, you're teaching in public, you're, you're spreading this information in public, and so you know, you're going to damage people if you're saying something wrong, and so we need to address it publicly. Um, you know, and there's, there's a time that we need to do that sort of thing, you know, and, and Paul even does things like that occasionally, but yeah. you got to think, uh, you know, what, what's being said, how's it being said, are there ways that I can approach that to be helpful? You know, if, if they go and they teach this guy, Apollos, if they would have confronted him in front of the crowd, how receptive do you think he would be? Yeah. <laughs> Not very. But if he is instructed more fully, what do you think he's going to do for those people he was teaching before? Yeah. You know, The if, very next week he's going to get in the pulpit and he's going to say, hey guys, uh, I, I've had the opportunity to study this a little bit more. L let me tell you a little bit more. All right, I, I haven't been giving you the full picture, you know. And I think they knew that that, that he was that kind of guy. That we can take him aside. He's going to receive that in the right way if we present it to him in the right way. And you know, at, at his next opportunity, that then do some preaching and some teaching, um, he's going to teach the full gospel. And um, I think there was recognition of of, of that. Um, there's just a. This is just a. Again, it's not a huge description here, but just that phrase, they took him aside. I think that's such a powerful lesson about, about tact and approach. And, and to go back to what you were talking about a few minutes ago about, all right, folks that we know in the religious world who have you know, a hang-up on like something like this, like, uh, like baptism, um, it's just an incomplete understanding uh, or not a fully accurate understanding. You know, instead of just blasting them, all them down there in that denominational church, and they're just hacking the Lord off and everything that they do, and they just don't care about Bible authority and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Hold, hold on, let's, let's back up a little bit. You know, th th there may be some apologies there, yeah. and if if it, if it was approached in, in in a right kind of way, in this spirit and in uh, this environment. Um, then, then a lot of good could actually end up being the end result of all of that. Yeah. Um, you see a lot of humility in what they do, um, and you know, going back to the point, the married couple—they are—it's a team. Yes. Um, and they're in this together, teaching people together. I think that's a, that's a cool thing. To see. Absolutely, and that is the second thing I was going to point out about this um, is that they did this. <laughs> yeah. Luke uses that term. They took him aside in the structure of the sentence. They explained to him the way of God more accurately. I, I do not believe that Priscilla just sat there 
you know, quietly and never said a word and, you know, you know, put a doily on her head and, you know, was just in complete, you know, silence and, and submission in that sense. Um, it seems like, in, and this is a, this will kind of get us off on maybe a, a little tangent, but this is a good place as any to do it. Um, it seems like in the church, historically, um, we've kind of swung to extremes about things. If you kind of study about the, the history of, of, of the church like in America in previous generations, um, the church lots of times did what like our country was doing. There's a period in our of time in our country where women really weren't treated very well. You know, women ain't allowed to vote. Uh, women aren't allowed to do these other things. And that kind of then transported itself into the church to where women were just nothing more than just, you know, bumps on a log. You know, and you go into a church building and, like, it'd be segregated. You men sitting on this side and the women sitting on that side. Uh, I'm not saying there's necessarily anything inherently wrong about that in and of itself, but it kind of just spoke to that mentality of kind of that women are, are, are these subservient beings. And so, you know, we can't have them speak. You know, you read 1 Corinthians 14, you read the passage in Timothy, and, you know, folks draw some very simplistic conclusions from all of that, is that women are just supposed to sit there and, and shut up. Um, that's that extreme. Now, of course, today, in our world today, you know, to try to correct some of that, there are churches that have kind of swung to the other extreme, where you've then got women that are preaching, You've got women that are being appointed as elders. And I'm talking in churches of Christ. You know, you're talking about just the religious world at large. I'm talking about even in you know, churches that wear Christ's name. Uh, women serving in roles that, that biblically you, you just, you're not going to find authority for. Um, what we want to find is we want to find the proper balance in all of that. And I think you know, this is a good place to start is the example of, of Priscilla here. Um, she's helping and assisting in that teaching. I, if, if I had to guess, I'm guessing probably Aquila, the husband, he's probably the one leading that discussion. He's probably the one who kind of initiates all of that. But again, I don't think Priscilla's just sitting there, you know, completely muted, not contributing anything, just maybe kind of every now and then just quietly nodding, you know, in affirmation. Yeah. Now, I think she was part of that study. And that ought to encourage women, um, our sisters in Christ, that um, you have a role in the kingdom. And, 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 and sometimes we make the mistake of, of shackling that role uh, way more than, than what God intended for it to be. I always chafe when I hear this statement said. And it's one of those little statements that gets said, and I think people say it because they just assume everybody knows what's meant by it. But it gets said, and it's just, it's just flat wrong. You'll hear people say, Christians say, well, women can't teach. <laughs> A woman can't teach. That, that's false. That's just false. What is a woman doing when she sits in the assembly and she's singing? Right. According to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, she's teaching. She's admonishing her brothers and sisters. What is a woman doing when she stands before the congregation and she's making the confession of faith before she's baptized into Christ and says, I believe Jesus Christ the Son of God. What's she doing? She's teaching. What is a woman doing just in her example as she lives you know, a godly life? She is teaching. And so we make a huge mistake when, when we distill stuff down to those little capsized little statements like that. Mm -hmm. We need to get rid of that. What we need to say is we need to say 
that a woman can teach within the role that God has designed for a woman to, to have. Uh, and yes, that is with, there are some limitations to that. Let's be clear about that. That is what Corinthians teaches. Is there's limitations placed upon that in an assembly of the church. There's limitations placed upon that. The, the, the Timothy passage talks about that, that really is rooted all the way back in the order of creation. Um, but, but to say that a woman can't teach, actually I think is to fly in the face of what Acts chapter 18 verse 26 says. This woman is involved in the teaching of Apollos. I've said a lot, now you say some stuff. <laughs> okay, well here's some stuff. Um, you know, it's much easier with anything religiously, well anything in life I guess, just to have uh, you know, an overall statement that everything fits perfectly into this box. It's a catch-all statement. It is, yeah. yeah. And especially you know, when, when we're reading the Bible and we, we see passages like 1 Corinthians 14 you know, and those sorts of things, um, it's easy to come off with a very simplistic view, like you said. To find the truth and to find you know, what we need to do, how we need to view things, it's much more complex. We have to look at all the examples. We have to look at all the information. Um, don't let our culture influence us because mm -hmm. I think that's what's, what's killed this because uh, you, know, you have these opposing viewpoints. And the more that we... I don't know, have contention and opposition over certain issues, the more it pushes us apart into the, the opposite extremes. Um, you know, and I'm not saying every issue that we, we find, you know, it, it's right in the middle where the truth is. You know, sometimes it's more closer to one side than others. Um, but it just it depends on the situation. But, but at this issue with all of others, don't let the culture influence us and in how we view things. Um, but don't let our preconceived notions do that either. Mm -hmm. um, we have to come, uh, come and look at this with fresh eyes and, and, and to try to understand what, what this means. Um, I mean, it's, it's amazing. If you look at the New Testament, uh, just the New Testament alone, and, and, and look at how women were talked about, um, and you compare it with other first century works, um, I mean, it's there's no comparison. Yeah. I mean, especially Luke as a writer, how We've much noted he those. includes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, and I think he does that on purpose. Um, I, I think he, he's really pointing that out, um, that the view of women from the first century culture doesn't influence biblical teaching. Um, you know, it, it was it's very much uh, divorced from the culture of the mm -hmm. time. Um, and so I think that's that's important to note here, um, and and just just because I believe the church has got it wrong in the past, you know, several years, however long, um, just because that's been the case doesn't mean we need to throw it all away. Right. Um, someone else's bad biblical interpretation doesn't mean that the Bible's wrong. It just means that their interpretation's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just we need to be careful with how we view things like that. Well, you know, like I said, a passage like this is helpful for, you know, this does not mean, you know, when I read 1 Corinthians 14 or, or the Timothy passage, it does not mean that a woman cannot come to me, you know, personally, maybe after the lesson and say, you know, you, you made this point in your lesson that was so good and it caused me to think of this. That doesn't mean that I need to stop her and say, whoa, sister! Stop talking to me. You're teaching me. No, 
Yeah. No, yeah. that's not what that... Now, could it get to a point where she's kind of taking on an authoritative... in an authoritative sense and it's kind of dominant? It could, but none of the sisters that I've ever been associated with would would dare to, you know, kind of cross that line. This does not mean that a woman can't, you know, uh, write things that, that would be scriptural in, in, in nature, that teach. And we've got some sisters. We've got, we have a sister here who... I mean, she's so good with like poetry, and she's wrote kind of religious poetry, kind of based on scriptural things. And I've included those in like the church bulletin before. Uh, you think about the hymns that we sing. You know, mm. some of the greatest hymns that we've sung, that we sing, are written by women. Um, you know, Fanny J. Crosby, of course, is probably the most notable example. And uh, I'm not I don't remember entirely what she was religiously, but I know of of sisters in the church presently, in the present day, who have wrote some things. Glenda Shales and some of the songs that she's got, like in her supplement book, um, she she she's taught us in, in that sense. Um, it's 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 not usurping the authority that the Bible talks about. It's not taking some kind of authoritative role in the assembly, like First Corinthians fourteen is talking about. But it's a woman finding ways that she can teach and influence and be a help in the kingdom of God within the role that God designed for, 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 for women to play. And, um, and I think we see Priscilla doing that here with her husband. It, 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 may, it may be a little bit easier for a woman like in this case where she's got a husband and they're kind of working as a team. And probably at this point in time, they've got kind of a well-oiled you know, machine here of kind of how this works with one another uh, and that we're not, you know, I'm not trampling all over, you know, roles that I shouldn't be trying to, to play. Um, but just another great example uh, of, of what women can do. Great example, again, of what two people who are married and in the Lord can do. Yeah, uh, be careful uh, of the spouse that you choose. Yes. I think uh, Priscilla... Uh, is is a, a much better choice than a Jezebel. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there are are people who are led astray because of their spouse, um, and and sometimes, you know, there are people who aren't necessarily led away from the Lord. It's just become complacent. Um, you know, this seems like something that, that there was a lot of encouragement coming from Priscilla, as often as she is mentioned. Um, that that's an impressive thing, and so. Uh, Men, find yourself a Priscilla. Yeah. yeah. Women, find an Aquila. Well, let's talk then finally about, it's not stated here explicitly, but I think we can infer this, and that is the response that Apollos has to this you know, kind of side teaching that they tried to help give him. Verse 27, when Apollos then wished to cross to Achaia, and I think that probably, because this would the region of Achaia includes Corinth, this may be specifically like his desire to go over to help the Corinthian church. And again, when you read the Corinthian letter, Apollos was well known there. He had clearly done work there. Um, and this passage kind of is probably the, the genesis of that. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. I think all of this indicates that Apollos really showed just great maturity on his part um, in accepting the you know the, the the correction if that's the word that you want to use that Aquila and Priscilla did uh, the expounding that they did you know Apollos did not you know buck up against that and say well who are you and 
you know, look, I've got my degree from Alexandria, and here you are, a bunch of tent makers, and, uh, you know, I'm a great orator, and who are you all? You all don't even do any kind of preaching and teaching. That wasn't his response. His, he, there was a humility. Um, he wasn't trying to be argumentative. Instead, he, he saw that, hey, this is a brother and a sister who, who care about me, and they just want, that they see that there is this, uh, you know, diamond in the rough here that, look, if, if we can kind of help, you know, sand off some of those rough edges, man, this guy's going to be a tremendous asset for the kingdom and for the Lord. And um, he accepted uh, the things that they taught, and he then ran with that and ends up being an asset to people in other places uh, exactly as it's just the way that it works. You know, I, I want to throw back to, to verse um, 10 which this this obviously isn't Corinth, but remember when, when the Lord told Paul, I have, I have many people still left in this city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just the thoughts of how many people are out there that are potential converts that we don't even think about, yeah. that, that, we, that we stay away from because, you know, maybe we want to avoid confrontation, you know, and, and, and maybe it's, it's that where, uh, man, this guy is, man, he's, he's really laying it out there. He's really eloquent. Man, he's really impressive. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I could teach him. You know, like you were saying, I'm a tent maker. Right. You know, I, I don't know enough. You know, what what if he asked this question? I don't know. I don't know what I would say. You know, or what if he brings up this? Oh, I don't, I don't know how to refute that. Well, you know, the power is in the message. And I think Apollos proves that yeah. because of verse 28. He was refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures, yeah. you know, and so it's the powers in the message. It's not in us. Um, so it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter who we're trying to teach is because the power isn't in our abilities. The power is in the gospel. Yeah. You know, if the power was in our abilities, you know, we're fighting a losing battle. There's always going to be somebody better than you, um, you know, as far as being intelligent or how eloquent you are. Uh, but, you know, when it comes down to it, the power is in the message of God and uh, people who are sincere, you know, they're going to find it, and, and God's going to get that message to them. You know, hopefully, He can use us. And if we are the kind of people that we will be, then we are going to be able to share that message. Um, and, you know, Apollos, being the kind of guy he was, as soon as he was converted, he immediately started, you know, preaching uh, the, the full truth Yeah. now. It's interesting that prior to verse 26, you know, it seems like a lot of the emphasis on how he's described is placed upon his his personal ability, his eloquence, and so forth. But after verse 26, specifically there in verse 28, the emphasis on what he was able to accomplish is on the fact that he he did this with the Scriptures. Yeah. Uh, he's powerfully refuting uh, from the Scriptures that, that, that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Um, it's not stated here, but I, I'm going to have to believe the fact that he only knew the baptism of John which, which probably means if he was baptized, well, I'm assuming he was baptized, he was baptized in, with John's baptism. Um, I'm going to assume that he probably was baptized in the name of Christ, even though the text doesn't say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably is a good preview for next week because in the first few verses of chapter 19, Paul's going to run into some people who only knew the baptism of John, and the result of that was they go and they are baptized by the authority of Christ in the name of Christ. And um, 
And so that's why I think we probably can probably logically conclude that, that Apollos would have done the same thing, uh, especially if he's going to get up and, and preach. You know, if he's going to get up and preach, you know, the same kind of message that Peter and Paul have been preaching about you need to repent, you need to be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, um, you, you probably need to have done that yourself in order for, uh, for that preaching to have any kind of, any kind of weight to it. Uh, and then just more importantly, just for his own, his own personal salvation. Yeah, um, all right. I've done what the Lord has said. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that it was uh, any accident that these verses are right next to yeah. the first part of chapter 19. Yeah. You know, I, I think we, obviously there are so many connections there. Um, and that's, you know, when the Bible was originally written, it, it was, Luke didn't put, here's the end of chapter 18. Yeah. Here's chapter 19. Um, you know, you would read this as, as one big narrative, one big story. And, and so it makes sense uh, when you put this with the next part. And so don't forget that. You know, yeah. when we come to this next week and, and we read that, you know, keep that in the back of our mind. And we'll, we'll try to, you know, remind you as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's definitely an inference we can make based on what's said. Yeah. And so that means we need to use some restraint right now and not start talking about chapter 19. We need to save that for, for next time. Uh, Don't want to spoil it. Yeah. Parting shots on 18 before we close it. Uh, man, this, this story is just heating up. I mean, we just keep finding more and more people who are willing to put their neck on the line. Um, and, and we're seeing people converted left and right. Keep in mind, we're seeing a lot of people who aren't being converted. And a lot of people are getting belligerent and, you know, um, being defensive. But uh, it, it's amazing how Luke chooses to focus his attention on the ones that believe. Mm -hmm. I think we need to do that too. Yeah. You know, focus on, on, on the victors. Focus on uh, people who are remaining faithful, not the ones that aren't. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this just is so helpful to see. Hope that we will continue uh, in the Word and just keep studying, guys. Well, we'll we'll wrap up then chapter 18, and we'll look forward to uh, chapter 19 uh, next week, where we will talk a little bit and, and and maybe spend a few minutes here at the beginning talking about, you know, even the subject of of rebaptism, mm -hmm. and um, that sometimes folks have some are kind of persnickety about even using that phrase at all, and what all goes along with that, and then we'll. Uh, we probably ought to bring our riot gear too because we're going to walk into a riot uh, in, in Ephesus. And uh, we'll talk about that next week in chapter 19. But thank you for listening and we look forward to, to talking again next time.